0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks
1: for joining us for Episode 797 with Amanda Crowell. Amanda shares how to make time and space To do more of the work that matters most to you. Your great work. So you'll learn one, how to get clarity on the work that fulfills you most. Two, how to say no to the other commitments eating up your time. And three, how to stop procrastination from sabotaging your goals. So if you wanna check out the show notes or the transcript or some links to bits that we reference here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP797. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the full text searchable transcripts of all 797 of those episodes and a whole lot of other goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Amanda's story. Dr. Amanda Kroll is a cognitive psychologist, speaker, author, and the creator of The Great Work Journals. Amanda's TEDx talk, Three Reasons You Aren't Doing What You Say You Will Do, has received over one and a half million views and has been featured on Ted's Ideas blog and Ted Shorts. Her ideas have also been featured on NPR, Al Jazeera, The Wall Street Journal, Quartz, and Thrive Global. Amanda lives in New Jersey with her husband, two adorable kids, and a remarkable newfie Poo named Ruthie. Big thanks to Amanda for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. know. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a 1 billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number 1 in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com/beawesome. That's linkedin.com/b e a w e s o m e as in you are being awesome, be awesome to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Amanda.
2: Amanda, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm
1: excited as well. I really want to dig into your book, Great Work. But first, I need to hear about clown school in Spain. What's the story here?
2: <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, was, I had finished my master's degree. This was in between my master's and my PhD. And I had had kind of a rough couple of years, which I think probably everyone listening can relate to. And I felt like I wanted to go somewhere and somewhere where I couldn't talk to anyone and no one could really talk to me. So I went to Spain. I went to an island off the coast of Spain, uh, Tenerife. It's actually off the coast of Africa, but it's a Spanish island. And I did language school for about, I don't know, maybe it was three weeks of language school. And then I planted myself in Santiago de Compostela, which is just a little part of Spain above Portugal, and was looking for things to do. So I saw that one of the local theater companies was offering a clown school and I thought, well, that will be fun. Not really realizing that my maybe minimal understanding of Spanish would sort of get in the way. And I found that it both did and also didn't because clowning is very, it can be very physical, but there was one experience where I didn't realize it, but we were playing a game where the person who's the focus of the game stands at the front of the room and everybody else in the class stands on the other side. And as long as you're funny, they will stand still. But if you stop being funny, they will move forward. I like (laughs) rush you like a, like an army. And I didn't like, somehow my mind knew this because I started telling the story of finding Nemo the movie, which had come out that summer. And they were, they had this very perplexed look on their face the whole time. And then finally they got it together and started rushing me. And later they told me in our like conversational Spanish, English thing that we would do that I was repeating the same thing that the person who came before me had Whoa. done. I had no idea.
1: <laughs> he also <laughs>
2: told the Nemo story.
1: Well, what are the odds?
2: <laughs> what? Well, apparently my brain totally heard it. I was like, oh, we're yeah. talking about Nemo. So I'll just, I'll just tell that story too which they did find funny for at least a little bit.
1: And so did you have any clown performances afterwards?
2: We had a clown performance at the end of the, of the two weeks of clown school. And then the person who was running it invited uh, a friend of mine and I to go to a clowning performance, like on the coast, which is like 45 minutes, uh, I guess, west of Santiago de Compostela. So we like got in the car and went there. And I didn't perform, but I was part of the troupe that was like sort of hanging around backstage and stuff. So that was fun.
1: All right. And have you put your clown skills to work in future times?
2: Well, as a mother, my clown <laughs> school, my clown skills are required every day. And as a professor, I think my students do find me to be engaging and funny. And I'm quick on my feet. And the the main rule of clowning, much like improv is that you have to just do what you are invited to do. If you've been invited hmm. to walk around on your hands, then to the best of your ability, you have to. In improv, they call that yes and. And it's basically the same thing in clowning. It just tends to be a little bit more physical. And that the being forced to do something just because you've been asked to do it, because that's the rule, is very freeing. It creates a different kind of habit of participation that I found very useful in all of life. Wow. Hmm.
1: <laughs> Never would have guessed. Okay. Clown takeaways, powerful. All right.
2: Powerful clown takeaways. Yeah. Yes. I guess we're done here. <laughs>
1: uh. <laughs> well, I'm curious to hear some powerful takeaways from your book, Great Work, Do What Matters Most Without Sacrificing Everything Else. Can you start yes. us off with any particularly surprising or fascinating or counterintuitive discoveries you've made along the way as you put this together?
2: Well, I think that the the cornerstone, like the the piece of insight or the the foundation of the book as a whole, is a little bit in reaction to what I would call sort of high performance productivity hacks, which I like everyone love right? Like, tell me exactly how Steve Jobs was able to do that. Tell me what Tim Ferriss does in his four-hour workweek. But there's a way that that kind of high-performance productivity stuff keeps you always racing against the clock. You could be more productive, more productive, more productive. And that's how I lived my life and had a couple of full-body rebellions And sort of mental health concerns, you know, feeling anxious. I wasn't feeling satisfied. And it wasn't really until I realized that there is another way to be powerfully productive that I took on. And then what surprised me, this is the big surprise, is that doing it that other way, that not high-powered, doing more, like, really... striving to be busy, striving for more accomplishments, that when you let that go and you do it this other way, then you actually gain access to what you want the most, which is your great work, which is the work you're being called to do, the work that requires your full capacity in order to break through the human condition and put that work out there, right? The, the art, the scientific discoveries, the businesses you want to build. There's a way to do those things much more quickly, much more powerfully, much more successfully for most people.
1: Okay. Well, what is that way?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So that way is what's outlined in the book, right? So it's got the different pieces of it. On the one hand, it's about doing much, much less. The high, the sort of high performance productivity idea is you can do so much more and you won't be super stressed, like the promise of it. And actually the the number one step of this other way is to do tons less, to back out, say no, protect your time so that you are creating space for resilience because you have to protect your resilience. It's your number one resource and create a vacuum of space into which your great work can build and bloom and like take up space in your life. People I find try to squeeze their great work in to the margins of their life, but it's their most important work. It's the work that they want to be known for. It's the work they want to create their legacy. And yet they're like, well, I'm trying to do it on Saturday mornings. And if I have an hour after work, I try to do a little bit of it then. And that's very, that's very backwards. That's prioritizing the, the expectations of others and not being strategic about your time so that you create actual time and actual resilience in yourself to do that work. And then there's just figuring out what your great work is, which is a certain amount of visioning and believing what you hear and trying to understand the voices in your head and differentiating them from each other. And honestly, I, I already said it, but I'm gonna say it again, like really believing what you hear. I find that a lot of very creative, innovative people will tell you that the thing they want the most is just not possible for them. I've already got a family, so I can't really be an entrepreneur. Or, you know, I'm a lawyer, I can't be an artist, I can't write a book or whatever. And really learning to believe the voice that's calling you from the inside is a big part of figuring out what your great work is. Often people know what it is, they just don't, they refuse to believe it. They refuse to give it any credence. Once you know what your great work is, then the it's the steps to turning it into a reality And that piece of it is about understanding the relationship of the ideas. Like if you're like, I want to change the face of medicine and you have an hour, how do you change the face of medicine in an hour? And so there's this filling the space between those two so that you understand what a vision is. And then there's other levels and uh, uh, accessible aspiration that you could do in a year, what you can do in 90 days, what you can do this week and what you can do today. And then you know that your efforts are accumulating towards your great work. So there's that practical kind of time management piece of it. And then the last piece is really developing self-expertise, which is also about allowing the productivity advice that you hear to be relevant or not and putting together your own elixir of what really works for you. And that's where a lot of the mindset stuff comes in as well.
1: Alrighty. Well, starting with zeroing in on you know what is the great work
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the calling and the vision and stuff how do we arrive at that and get real clarity on this is the the thing and this is not the thing
2: yeah well and there will be multiple things so sometimes it's like well i love all of these things and it's not a matter of denying parts of yourself it's a matter of prioritizing and choosing and giving one of those things enough time to actually grow into something so i think i mentioned like sometimes people don't know what their great work is and they have, they are really uncertain that they have great work inside of them. Some people have great work, but I'm just not one of them. I'm all over the place and I'm lazy. This isn't resonating with me, but I have found that in every conversation, truly with people who want to talk it through and figure it out, that great work is in all of us. So sometimes it's a matter of doing some searching. So there's you know, you can do sort of auditing of your prior experiences. What's always true? One really key indicator that something is part of your great work is when other people do it, you feel really jealous. So mm-hmm. I remember th- there's this story of, this is really resonant with the whole clown thing. One of my bosses in the past was uh, little Mikey on Sesame Street. So you know how they have kids mm. on Sesame Street who like talk to Kermit the Frog? So my boss was little Mikey talking about what is love with Kermit the frog in the seventies, which means that the puppeteer doing Kermit the frog was Jim Henson himself. Mm. And I literally could not handle that that had happened to him. And that feeling of like just waves of like, whatever you want to call it, envy or jealousy, or just like, why didn't that happen to me? Or like yearning is a real indication that there's something in that that you really want for yourself. So looking at the things that you've been envious about over time, uh, childhood dreams, like reinvigorating, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer, or I've always wanted to be a musician, or I've always wanted to cure cancer, or I've just always wanted to be a businessman, like the Warren Buffett of the future. Those give you the clues. And sometimes you can't nail it down before you get into action. It's often the case that taking steps in the direction of what you think you might want quickly clarifies, I do not want this. Or, wow, this is amazing. I, I light right up. I start to feel satisfied again. I feel excited. I, I, I want to find the time to do it. I, I'm not watching as much Netflix or playing as many video games because I'm called. I'm, I'm drawn to do this other thing. Mm-hmm. Once you know what it is, then you have to protect that time. And that's where saying no and doing less, this starts to become the game. Because if you're good at what you do, people want you to do it for them. And you should. There's so lots of opportunities. If it's, if it's a great opportunity that takes you in the direction that you want to go in, I'm all for it. But there's lots of sort of random one-off. In the book, we talk about how to evaluate whether an idea is a good one, whether it moves you towards your great work. And it really just comes down to like, can you see the connection between what you're doing and your great work, like as you've defined it. And with the example we use is like building a pergola in your backyard because this actually happened to us. We, were, we just decided we wanted a pergola in our backyard, which is actually something you can buy off the internet and they send you all the wood. And they say like, oh, you can do it in a weekend. But of course that's not true. It's going to be many weekends of trying to put up this wooden grape arbor thing <laughs> in your backyard. And it's like, whether or not building a pergola in your backyard is your great work depends on how it fits into this larger system of the things you spend your time doing. So if you're in the middle of flipping your house and you want to get big return on investment and you feel like you're going to get more money for your house, then building a pergola is, is a great use of your time because you can see the connection. But if it just feels interesting, and, but really you don't spend that much time in the backyard and you only thought it was cool once. Then, no matter how compelling it is in that moment, you can step in and say, "I need to protect my time so that I have the time to do what I'm really here to do." Just—it's a skill. It's a skill that's developed over time.
1: Okay. Well, could you share an example of of a client or someone who found themselves overwhelmed with all the stuff and and then trimmed it down and, and pursued great work to cool results?
2: Yeah so many. (laughs) And I'd say that that's one of the strengths of the book is that it's just filled with case studies. So there's people find themselves in all kinds of situations. Like we, we come to our great work when like today, it's always just today and every day is filled with things. So, you know, sometimes people find themselves really stretched very thin around Expectations that people have. They've got children, and I'm not saying expectations as though those things don't matter because they do, but you do have to take care of your children. If you're in the sandwich generation where you have both children and parents who need care, that's a real thing. It takes a lot of time to do that. If you also have a business and your husband has a business and he wants your help with it. So that's the example that's in the introduction of the book, actually, is a woman who was in that exact situation. She was, she had heard me speak and she stayed on the the zoom link until people had left. And then was just like, I am hearing everything you're saying and you're absolutely right. But like, I can't, I think she wanted me to convince her that she could, but she was maxed out. She was taking care of her mom. She was ta- she was helping her husband. Cause he wasn't very good with the books of his business. She had a coaching business of her own. And that's what she wasn't getting to. She wasn't writing the book she wanted to write. And she wasn't creating the program that she wanted to create. And she was like, I just can't get to it. And I'm like, of course you can't get to it because you're doing all of these things. So she is an example of somebody who knew what they wanted, but couldn't get to it. That's very common. And so that over the course of a couple of years, talking to her and encouraging her to piecemeal, bit by bit, release herself from all this overcommitment. So like she found someone at her church to take her mother a couple of days a week. And that released her from it. And then there was a really big conversation with her husband where she said, you have to find someone else to do your books because like, I can't get to what I need to get to. And he was very disappointed and felt kind of betrayed. But that was her reality, that if she was never gonna get to what mattered to her until she was able to put some of his own burden back on him because she had accepted it all and now she needed to give some of it back. And so in bits and pieces like that, a lot of what I do is very like, as long as you're doing something today that aligns to what you wanted to do this week, which aligns to what you wanted to do in the 90 days, you're doing it. Because the other thing that I think for her in particular was really powerful was knowing she was done because she never ever felt done. Just this endless to-do list. And it was the feeling of like, just, you know, what am I striving for? Like I'm exhausted. I, I never exercise. I don't eat well. And so once you've done the things aligned to your great work and you've met the expectations that you have drastically pared back, your life changes. Even before you're doing the great work, you feel so much better. And I talked a little bit about resilience being your number one resource. This is where that kicks in. When you start feeling better, the things that are hard, innovation, creativity, problem solving, collaboration, all the things that are the skills of the 21st century economy, you're better able to do them when you're not exhausted, hungry, in pain, and maxed out and brain dead. Yeah. So for her, doing all of those things made it possible to start actually making progress. And she's gotten very far, I would say, in the time since we worked together.
1: Okay. And do you have any pro tips on, on how one goes about exiting, burdens, and, and reducing yeah. the load, and, and saying no, and, and these sorts of things?
2: I do. Yes, there's. Some of it is making a list of the, the things you've agreed to do. The projects is what David Allen would call them and getting things done. Like anything that requires more than one step is a project. So what projects do you have ongoing? And if you're walking your sister's dog and you're planning the school party for your kids and you're the person who does birthdays at work and you sing in the choir, you know, like those are all commitments. And then looking at that list of commitments, some of them will be the obvious elephants in the room. Like I don't want to do it; it doesn't make me happy to do it. I'm just doing it out of obligation. And the person that I'm feeling obligated to is not really that important. It's not my mother. It's the the woman at church who handed it off to me and refuses to take it back every time I try to give it to her. Those are the the top line things that can create instant relief and make you feel tons better right away. So in that case it's about having the difficult conversations and that's sometimes if you have a coach going through that and a role-playing thing can be really helpful but really it's about the rubber hits the road you open your mouth and say i'm really sorry i know i said i would do it but i can't and what's interesting about those kinds of conversations is that they they cause a lot of agita ahead of time but the minute they're done The relief and the joy and the happiness that you don't have to do it anymore is so awesome that it sort of drives you forward into the other things. So that's one. That's like literally saying no to things that you've committed to, backing out of them. That's the hardest. And so that's where we always start. But there are other things that don't require so much overt acknowledging of what you're doing. I like to call it doing B-minus work, which is where, like, I was in consulting for a number of years before I started. Back as a professor at a university, which is what I do now in addition to the coaching and consulting and speaking and stuff that I do. But when I was in consulting, which is a very billable hours kind of environment, right? It was very overwhelming. the number of tasks that you had to do, and you felt you had to do all of them really well. And I noticed that there were a lot of those tasks that, if you look at them in smaller pieces, there were parts of them that you could do just good enough. Now, those particulars are very particular for the job. Every job has them. This is what I've learned in coaching all these people over all these years is, for example, hospice nurses. They travel around. They get out of their car. They go into the house. They meet with their client. They come back out. They have to write up notes in between. They're supposed to do it in between the clients, but they all do it at night at home because they need to get off to the next client. Uh, They're probably driving their car. So the typical advice given to them is to do your notes before you leave the house. But if you go into that and think, like, which exact pieces of the notes do I need to do? Because when I try to think of it later, I've forgotten a lot of it. You can figure out that there's just three fields that I should fill in. And then when I come back to do it at night, it's much faster. So things like that, where you don't have to do it in this full-throated, full-throated way. I'm going to do all my notes as fast as I can and somehow be this superhuman. I'm going to do just these three because those strategically are the ones that matter. Every job has little pockets where these things matter and these things matter less. In consulting, one of the things I noticed was, these emails that we would send, we would have these group, big group meetings and we would send agendas ahead of time and we would send notes afterwards. The agendas mattered a lot. People came, we had better meetings when the agendas were good and, and they got them on time. Nobody, not a single person ever opened the notes documents that came afterwards. And so I started writing those as B, B minus work where, It was a description of who was there because you need that for like contract work and how long it was, the location, and then three bullet points of topics that we covered. And not a single person noticed. It didn't impact the workflow. My boss didn't care. And so instead of 30 minutes, it was five minutes and 25 minutes of my time is back. So there's bits and pieces of your workflow when you look at it in smaller pieces that can release you from this overwhelming feeling without actually changing anything or nobody even notices that you're doing something differently, but you experience it really differently. And it can be very helpful.
1: Very cool. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a, a fun turn of a phrase. You mentioned three horsemen of the goal apocalypse. What's the story here?
2: Yeah. So... I think at one point in this interview, I said something about like overcoming the human condition to do the, to do your great work. That's really what I was talking about. We have these things that when we get tired, we get exhausted, when we get nervous or fearful, they kick in, they're protective. So procrastination is one of those horsemen, right? Like I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. I want to do it. I for- totally forgot. I wanted to do it. Perfectionism is one of those. I'm going to do it perfectly and I'm going to take forever forever. And I'm never really going to get it out the door because it's never good enough. And then overworking is one of those. So overworking, procrastination, and perfectionism. So like I'm going to work myself until I'm a little nub of a person, a little pile of ashes. And that keeps you from doing your great work too, because I'm so busy. Now's not the time. I have to wait until all these things line up. These are like things we do to self-sabotage our goals. That's why they're the three horsemen of the goalpocalypse.
1: Okay. And so then is the thought then if we have trimmed out the other stuff and we have a good vacuum to work with, those just disappear or are there a particular uh, prescriptions for them?
2: A lot of it's mindset work, right? Like reframing your thoughts about things. The ability to do that mindset work is much more possible when you're not maxed out and totally out of resilience and burned out or overworking. So for example, procrastination. I have this TED Talk, you can put a link to it in your show notes or whatever. And I think it's very popular. Has like, I don't know, maybe close to 2 million views now. And I think the reason that it's so popular is procrastination. It's about procrastination really. And it talks about what the source of procrastination is, which is this thing called defensive failure. And defensive failure is the idea how how as humans we defend ourselves against real failure by failing ahead of time, by procrastinating, right? So like, why do we procrastinate? It's just a strategy, right? It's a defense mechanism, but like what's underneath it? And that's what the TED Talk is about. And it's the three mindsets that stop you from doing what you say you will do. So one is, I don't believe I can. Like other people are athletic, but I am not. So like, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I won't be able to be a runner, for example, right? And so you set these exercise goals. You don't do anything about them because in your own heart and mind, you think you cannot, that there was something granted at birth, you didn't get it, and all you're ever gonna do is fail at this and you're just not up for that, right? So that's one, I can't, I cannot. Like I literally cannot. Then there's people like me don't do things like this, which is the belonging one, which is like, If I do this thing, what does it mean about me? And if it's in conflict with my identity in some way, my favorite example of this one is when I was learning how to sell my coaching. And I was like, I'm a heart-centered helper type. I'm never going to be pushy. So the thing I wanted to do and how I saw myself clashed. And when that happens, it triggers defensive failure because we never want to be in conflict with ourselves. Our brain really does not allow for it. So there's, you need to resolve that. You need to say, oh, there's room in my identity to be a a heart-centered salesperson, for example. The solution for the first reason we procrastinate, I think I can't, is to learn all about the brain and understand that everything through effort, over time, with help, anything is possible. Immediately, people are like, you can't be Einstein. Fine. Anything normal is possible with effort, over time, with help. Those are the three things. If you're willing to do those three things, you're good. So that's the resolution to the first. And then the second is like, make room in your identity, like resolve it, go meet people, talk to people, read the magazines, like learn more about the thing that feels so counter to who you are and find a place for yourself in it. And then procrastination, it does give way. And the final one is I don't want to do it. I just think I should want to do it. And this is where like, everyone tells you, oh, you should be so you should, you should just, the world tells you, you should want to lose weight, but actually you're like fine with how you look. So you make these goals. I'm going to go keto, but you don't actually care about it. You don't really want to do it. It just feels like you have to say it because like the world says you have to, that's never going to work because actual real change is very difficult. And <laughs> you, you don't want to do it. You're not going to do it. So a lot of that is letting go. Like if you're happy with how you look, like let it go. Right. Not until the doctor tells you that you are not going to live if you don't change your behaviors, like, you know, follow your own body, whatever. But If you do want to do it, but you don't want to do it, but you do want to do it, like if you're stuck in that whole thing, then it's about building intrinsic interest for it. Find something that interests you, connect it to your long-term hopes and dreams, find a way to have actual interest, curiosity, connection, build it up in like intentionally Like go do that work. And that will help the procrastination to go away. So those three things are like why we procrastinate. And then, so the, that's like the resolution, depending on which one it is, for that horseman of the apocalypse. And there's similar you know, thoughts and stuff all outlined in the book for the others as well.
1: Now, how does one intentionally build interest and curiosity? I think some folks think, hey, you, you got it or you don't. Either this thing yeah. is interesting to you or it's not. How, if you yep. want more interest and curiosity, how do you build that up?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, as humans, we can kind of be interested in anything. Tell a good, think about this. When's the last time you watched a movie that was totally outside of your interest, but the story was so good and the characters were so real. And like, I'm experiencing that right now with the book Ready Player One, which is about like virtual reality video games and I'm the last person to play a virtual reality video game. But the story is so compelling that I'm like, okay, teach me about this so that I can follow this story. When you find an angle on something, you can get excited about it. So like when I was, the TED Talk is all built around the fact that I was never, ever, 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 ever going to exercise. And then I had these two kids and my, my body was all messed up. And so I decided i better put all my money where my mouth is and figure out how to exercise. And then I did, and I did a triathlon, a half marathon. That's like the, the structure of the TED Talk. And I remember having the exact same question that you just posed, which is like, if I don't like exercise, I just don't like it. But I found that thinking about exercise through a scientific lens was an angle in on it for me. And I found that by reading Runners magazines and seeing like what kinds of interesting things do these people talk about. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And I learned all kinds of things about like the blood vessels in your fingers, like way out in your extremities. The only way to get them to grow is to do uh, intense cardiovascular fitness stuff. And my fingers were always cold. So I was like, well, okay, let's do a six mile run. Cause if that actually grows blood vessels out into the tips of my fingers, like, ah okay, I'm interested. Tell me more. So it doesn't always have to be the big doorway people walk through to be interested in something. I don't have to watch sports. Thank God. Cause I do not like them. I didn't have to watch sports. I didn't have to be competitive, which I'm not, Right? like all the main things that sort of describe athletic people didn't work for me, but the science of fitness, the physiology of it, the communities that build up around You know, like the little group of people I rode my bike with and the little group of people I learned swimming from, like those things, the sort of tangential parts really worked for me. And I developed quite a lot of interest in exercise. And the same thing happened with nutrition when I um, had an autoimmune flare up thing and I needed to discover how to like manage my inflammation naturally. And I suddenly had tons of interest and curiosity and talking to people. So I think believing that you can find something interesting is sort of step one, and then go talk to the people, read the magazines, see what they're talking about. Something will catch your eye. If it doesn't, you always have in your back pocket the connection to your long-term hopes and dreams. So like my favorite example of this is taxes. There are very few people who are like going to be super interested in the tax code and all of them have already become CPAs, right? The rest of us are not going to be like, Ooh, tell me about this particular deduction and the changes between 2020 and 2021. None of us feel that way, but we can draw a really clear, uh, in law school, they call them bright line, like a bright line between doing my taxes and keeping my expenses updated and whatever to my long-term hopes and dreams. And like really building that out can be enough to help with interesting curiosity. Like I want to have a stable enough financial system in place for my business that if I grow quickly, it won't overwhelm me or I won't find myself in a pickle or I won't get audited and freak out. Like those kinds of bright lines. Now I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do this even without the usual interest and curiosity, like if you can't build it in intrinsically.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Amanda, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah.
2: Only that there's a journal, the Great Work Journals. There's three of them. One's like the Great Work Journal and it's sort of life-based. And then there's a one for entrepreneurs and there's one for students. And it can be a really good way to coach yourself through the process of getting started, staying at it, not procrastinating it helps you build like a gratitude practice. And those are really, I think, great ways to start once you've read the book and you're like, how do I do this? Get the journal and like, try to follow it. Cause I think the people who love it report that it can be very transformational. So I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. All right.
1: Well, now could you share a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring?
2: I like, the quote, and I'm not entirely sure who said it. it. Might be Albert Einstein. That's like in my brain somewhere. But it's uh, 90% of success is showing up. Because so I do find that if you just show up and then show up again, you don't get nowhere. You get somewhere. And then that somewhere can hit the hockey puck or the hockey stick, I guess they call it, the exponential curve. And there is no way to hit that if you're not showing up. And I think it takes the drama out. Of like, I need to show up and do big things. No, just show up.
1: All right. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research?
2: Yeah. So the one I talk about the most that I think had the biggest impact on me and my clients and the schools that I worked with when I was a consultant is the notion of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. It's so fundamental and it gets oversimplified, I think, in the media into this like, if you think you can, you can. And it's really not about that. It's really a, It's really much more, the opposite of that is much truer, which is if you think you can't, you won't, right? Like your literal brain will shut you down. If you're like, I'm never gonna get this math homework done, your brain is gonna reduce all the activation, all the problem solving centers are gonna shut down, like you're not gonna do it. But if you believe that you can, then you get into all the stuff we know about cognitive neuroscience, like what does it actually take to learn? What are the skills and strategies? And if you are willing to put in effort over time and get help, new strategies, new ideas, new ways, different ways to engage with it, you can learn almost anything. And it's incredibly freeing. It it takes us all out of this prison of our own making of like I need to do what I'm already good at and instead places us in a place of possibility. That feels uniquely human and I think helps us heed the call of our great work.
1: All right. And a favorite book?
2: Well, I mean, this has nothing to do with cognitive neuroscience. My uh, favorite book is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice.
1: All right. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: Yeah. You know what I really like is the Dunn app.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a good one.
2: It is a good one. I like it and it's pretty and I feel like looking at it and I'm so happy to see streaks. I love it
1: hmm And a favorite habit?
2: I like time blocking, but not in a super intense way, just like blocking the mornings for creative work and then blocking time around meetings to, to return to the ideas. Like that's really helpful for me. I use my calendar. Like I'm dogmatic about it. I can't imagine not having a very seriously organized calendar for time blocking.
1: All right. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often.
2: Well, I think that the idea that there is another way, that you don't have to hustle and grind to do great work. That's what people seem to come back and say like, "Okay, I need to know how to do that. I've tried the other way and it didn't work for me."
1: Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you to point them?
2: I would point them to amandacrowell.com. I have a podcast called Unleashing Your Great Work, and you can find a link to that on the on the website and also all the buy links to the book. I really think the book is probably the best place to start to really get a sense of who I am and then listen to the podcast to hear other people talking about their great work so that you can build the courage to actually pursue your own, which is really what it's all about.
1: Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I would say it's it's believe what you're hearing on the inside. If there's a piece of your job that you want to do more of, listen to that and ask for the opportunity to do more of it. If there's a part of your job that is not really hitting on all cylinders for you, begin the conversation about offboarding that part of it or replacing it with something that's more your jam. Because the more closely aligned you are with your jam or your great work, the better the work you'll do and the more valuable you'll be to the company as well.
1: All right, Amanda, thank you. I enjoyed this chat and wish you much luck with all your great work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Amanda's perspective about the small voice inside and listening to that. And I think it's so easy to dismiss it too quickly. Like, oh, that'll never work. That's impossible. That's too risky. But I got to feed my family. Like <laughs> The small voice inside, I guess we small, call it small or quiet for a reason, because it's very easy to just dismiss and squash with some more dramatic emotion or fear or something. So I really appreciate Amanda's perspective on tuning into that. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP797. Hope to catch you next time. And peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's
1: world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Pepper play sets. Pepper Pig.